0: Tonight, um, quite fittingly, I've come in late. I'd like to speak about um, a teacher and a Tibetan Lama who is a a beloved and close friend of mine um, and a very respected person in my own life uh, who died this past week and that's Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the leader, probably the leader of the largest Buddhist community in America, counting all of his disciples, with Naropa Institute and uh, the center in Colorado and various centers in the Rocky Mountains and in Nova Scotia and in 25 different cities and several places in Europe, a very large following. At 47 years old, he died. Um... And so in a way to speak tonight will be a commemoration or a celebration of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I think he would have it as a celebration. And hopefully to share that in a way which is relevant to this process that we undertake here together. There's a beautiful sutra in the Mahayana teachings of Buddhism called the Vimalakirti Sutra. And Vimalakirti is a great bodhisattva or teacher who, rather than appearing as a monk or a priest, decides to incarnate as a layman and go among the peoples of the world and teach in the language that can be understood by every person he meets. And in this sutra, Vimalakirti appears in different guises. In one point, he's part of the sutra, he's married and he has a whole flock of children in order to show the merit and the possibilities through surrender and awakening and practice in one's family. Later in the sutra, he becomes a bartender and is teaching the dharma to those who come for, for drinks. He enlightens them in the process. In another part of the sutra, he makes himself sick to give the people who are around him an opportunity to serve him so that they can learn caring and compassion in ways that are appropriate to their situation. And he goes through all of these different guises, if you will, entering into the very thick of life with a tremendous sense of joy and ease and uh, the discovery that those things, too, are really workable as one's practice or a part of it. In some way, Trumpa Rinpoche was closer to Vimalakurti than anyone I've ever met on on my travels in the Dharma. He escaped from Tibet in 1959 or 60, around the time that the Dalai Lama also escaped, in a very harrowing and uh, well-written account called uh, Born in Tibet. He describes the whole process of escape over the mountains. Came to India and then went eventually to England to Oxford University, And founded the first major Tibetan center in the West uh, in the mid 60s in England. He's been a tremendous supporter of the Vipassana community in America. It was through the founding of Naropa Institute in 1974 that he got Joseph Goldstein and myself and Sharon Salzberg and a number of us to begin to teach in a large scale way in this country. I met him first in the early 70s at a cocktail party in Cambridge when he was thinking about Naropa Institute and drinking cocktails, and he asked me, he knew the training that I had as a, as a monk and in the monasteries where I'd gone, we talked about it some, um, it was a Harvard University kind of, there were lots of professors dressed up and people playing intellectuals or whatever we were doing at that time, and, he asked about the training and a lot of interesting questions. And then he said, I think you should start to teach at this university will begin, Europa Institute. And I was reluctant. I said, I don't think I'm ready to teach at that level. I had some training in teaching in Asia and a bit of done a bit of teaching in a very small scale way while I was in graduate school. And I was quite reluctant. Well, he was quite pleased with that, actually. He said, it's, then it's clear you should be teaching. <laughs> come on, I'll sign you up, and you'd be the teacher for the part of Theravada Buddhism. So I went, and I'd met Joseph brief- briefly before that, but we really struck up a friendship as we were teaching the same thing there. Trumpa Rinpoche, beside being an initial supporter, over many years has been a, a great supporter of this practice. And when Mahasi Sayadaw came to this country, who came, he came here to Yucca Valley and then to Bari, uh, Rinpoche was in Europe, but telephoned and tried to arrange a flight to come back just to pay his respects to Masi Sando. Trumbo was a follower of the path of the Bodhisattva, the path of opening one's heart and one's life to all circumstances and all beings. And his way combined discipline and combined openness in a quite remarkable fashion. So I'll speak about him and some of the qualities that I've learned from him as a way to inform and inspire the practice that we do here. Some of the key elements in his teachings. The first is that they had a tremendous quality of brightness. I heard over many years at Naropa and elsewhere, um, 50 or 100 or more Dharma talks that he would give. And even if he came late and was in... um, sometimes a slightly inebriated state to give a talk, there was still an amazing quality of brightness and and, uh, uh, clarity to his mind. Um, Lama Govinda, who spoke to me one time about Trumpa Rinpoche, said that while he lived, Lama Govinda lived in Amora in the Himalayas of India in the 1950s and early 60s, many of the people escaping from Tibet came through his house and the lamas would stay with him. And he said, of all the young tulkus, of all the young incarnate lamas to leave Tibet, there was none as bright as Trumpa Rinpoche. Bright in the sense of the field of his being and his energy. And this Lama Govinda said, even at a point when he wasn't very happy with the way Trumpa Rinpoche was behaving, he said, I still have to admit there was no one who walked across the Himalayas and came out who had that light more than Trumpa. And his teachings were, in this quality of brightness, what he called the lion's roar. In the traditional Pali sutras, there's a very famous discourse of the Buddha, where someone says, how do you know about all the things that you claim to know about? I mean, have you really practiced? Have you really done it yourself? And the Buddha gives this reply, named the Lion's Roar Sutra, where he says, if there is any ascetic practice that has ever been made up on the continent of India, in all of the thousands of eons of world systems, I have tried it. I fasted. I lay on beds of nails. I, I went down to one grain of rice, one sesame seed a day, where I put my hand on my belly, I touched my backbone. He said, I sat up with my eyes open to the moon. I sat with my eyes open to the sun. He said, you name it, and I did it. And finally, he said, after all of those austerities and all of those practices, I discovered that that wasn't the point. It wasn't to torture the body, nor was it to indulge it, but the secret of the middle path, of the way of being with experience, with clarity and simplicity, neither resisting nor grasping, that brings one to liberation. It's, it's a very powerful sutra. You get a sense of the, of the power of the Buddha in a, in a very full way, just in reading it. Well, Trimpa also spoke of the teachings as the lion's roar. He said, the lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, any circumstance, any part of ourselves, including the most difficult emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of Meditation. We can realize that the chaotic situations must not be rejected. Nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to our confusion. We must sit and respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Even chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. We can learn to accept our states as part of the patterns of mind. Without question, without reference back to the scriptures, without help from credentials, directly acknowledging that they are so, and that these things are here and are true. That is the lion's roar. That whatever occurs in the samsaric mind, the mind of cycles, is regarded itself as the path. Everything is workable. It's an amazing quality to bring to one's practice. And the in the first year or two of teaching at Naropa Institute, the many years that I did at that Buddhist university, the book, um, Living Buddhist Masters, that I did was published. Um, and I exchanged books with Trungpa Rinpoche. I gave him a copy of that, and he gave me a, an autographed copy back in that, in that particular meeting of uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. It was one of the early years of Naropa. And in the inscription he wrote, he said, welcome back, like welcome back to the West. Can you hold the banner of the Dharma, question mark, in great big letters? Let us celebrate. And this was his inscription. And it, to me it's been a very meaningful inscription. Can we hold, can I, can all of us hold the banner of the Dharma, of the lion's roar? Trungpa Rinpoche not only taught Buddhism, but he also started a secular practice of meditation called the system of Shambhala training which taught people meditation without all of the Tibetan and Buddhist framework around it. And those Shambhala trainings are filled with beautiful banners picturing um, some of the symbols of what he called the state of mind of the rising sun. He said, you can look at the sun on the horizon and say it's setting and you're depressed and everything changes and it's all impermanent and it's such a shame the world can't be held on to. Or you can see everything that arises as an opportunity. And the whole spirit of Shambhala was to see what arose as an opportunity in practice. He had a very droll sense of humor as well when he would teach it. He could be very, very funny, but it usually was with a a short one-liner rather than long stories. I remember one evening when he was talking about how the practice of meditation was to not remove oneself, not to shield or armor oneself from experience, not to hide in a box or a cave or, or inside our fancy car or whatever. He used all kinds of metaphors or or inside our house and turn the heat and the air conditioning and the, close the curtains and try and make it safe for ourselves. He said it was to, to have no distance between ourselves and our experience. And he went on in this manner. Finally, after he was finished, someone raised their hand and they said, No distance? No distance? You know, and sort of asked a question about, Well, what if there are circumstances where things are fearful or difficult or hot or cold? Or this whole long question. And Trümpel looked back and he said, very simply, no distance. And then he picked up his glass of sake or whatever he was drinking and he said, good luck, sir. (laughs) And that was usually his kind of ending line after an answer. Good luck, madam. (laughs) Good luck, sir. (laughs) Jamie probably remembers it well. He was there also at Naropa. So there's this sense of proceeding not out of self-confirmation, not to make ourselves into some bigger, stronger ego, but rather of really being willing to stay with our experience as it presents itself and see it as practice. The second quality that was manifested in his life is still here, it's here as much as when he was alive for me, was the quality of openness, the open way a quality of fearlessness in practice. So I read you from a passage in a book called Dharmas Without Blame. He says, Dharmas, which is the word not only for the law or the teachings, but also for all the elements of body and mind that make up this experience. All the dharmas or elements which arise are without blame because there was no manufacturer of dharmas. Dharma's are simply what is. Blame comes from an attitude of security, identifying with certain reservations as to how things should be. Having this attitude, if a spiritual teaching does not supply us with enough covers and patches for the difficulties, we are in trouble. The Buddhist teaching does not, not only does not supply us with any patches or band-aids, it destroys them. As ego's patches are destroyed, there comes a point where relating to the teaching means a continuous death of the ego, of the self. Therefore, the teachings of dharmas without blame should be regarded as good news. It seems that it is good news, utterly good news, because there is no choice When you see it clearly, there is no choice whatsoever. Even praise and blame, fear and difficulty, are the conditioned experiences of a beautiful patchwork. Then he goes on to talk about Buddha Dharma without credentials not getting a Ph.D., not making oneself into a professional meditator, not taking spiritual practice as a thing, again, that distances ourselves from the world. And as images of a child. The child's world has no beginning nor end. It is timeless. To him or her, colors are neither beautiful nor ugly. He has no preconceived notion of birth or death. The crystal moon watches over millions of stars, and the child exists without preconceptions. And he taught a quality of openness, of finding in our own mind, in our own experience, this willingness to relate to whatever presents itself. Naropa Institute had psychology and music and art and poetry and dance and philosophy It was really an expression of the breadth of his vision of Dharma. And it was colorful. The banners were colorful. The way the people dressed was colorful. Gradually, they got to sort of have their own uniforms, which were generally three-piece suits with a cocktail in one hand and a cigarette in the other. But it was interesting. Someone said even very early on that it seems like all the Buddhists in Boulders are are yuppies. And their reply was actually, we're yuppies young urban Buddhists are upwardly mobile. But there was, a, there was a real sense of theater and play with all of it. Um, anything he did had this sense of, of being willing to engage in life and to play with it as a part of practice. It was anything but dull. When he spoke, he wrote a wonderful book on tantra, on the practice of Tibetan tantra. And although he mentioned the exercises of the changing of the heat in the body, the tumo practices and visualizations and so forth. When he got to the end of the book on Tantra, what he said was the, the real working with Tantra was a willingness to touch the raw feelings of our life. That working with the passions and the fears and the greed and the aggression, the emotions that fuel our action, the feelings themselves, was the highest of the Tantra. A willingness to open to all of these things. And it's interesting, because in one way in Buddhism, they can be seen as hindrances and defilements, things that we get caught up in and wish to free ourselves from. From the point of view of the teachings of the Bodhisattva, these are all qualities that have promise in them. So, for example, he talks about each person falling into one of the Buddha families. That is to say, a personality type of Vajra or Padma or Ratna or Buddha, which has a certain pattern to it. The Vajra family type is related in the Theravada Buddhist psychology to to the discriminating mind or the type of personality built around aversion so that in its crude state, one enters a room and sees what's wrong with it, what the problems are. One enters a new situation and sees the troubles. Padma, which is related to, in the Theravada typology, to greed, is the quality of someone who enters the room and sees what they like about it, what they'd like more of. They don't look at what's the problem. They look at what's beautiful or what's luscious or what they could Um, enjoy, or what's uh, sensual about it. And the Buddha family is the one that, in its unexalted state, is related to delusion of not seeing clearly, of avoidance of spaciness. But each of these qualities, each of these personality types, is considered a seed for enlightenment. So the person who has a great deal of judgment and aggression and critical quality of mind, the Vajra type, through practice, learns not to get rid of that, but rather to see its value, and it turns into what's called the Bodhisattva of discriminating wisdom. That that very ability to see what's wrong becomes like the sword of the Bodhisattva Manjusri that cuts through all obstacles and illusions and tells it like it is, as a great teaching of Dharma. Similarly, for the greed type, who gets caught in sensual things, eventually it gets transformed into the Bodhisattva manifestation of the Padma, whose beauty and charm and ease and ability to play and delight in the things of the world becomes the skillful means for enticing and illustrating and proclaiming the Dharma. For the Buddha type, where Initially, the mind states are of spaciness and avoidance and delusion. Eventually, it becomes a quality of clear space, of tremendous luminescence, and of clarity of mind. So the way of practice wasn't to see that the things that make up our personality are a problem, but rather that they're part of the fabric and pattern of being, and that they become workable and, in fact, usable as we become wiser. There's a story that I tell, kind of independent of Trungpa Rinpoche, that may illustrate this in a different way. I was teaching a retreat in Switzerland one year, and there were a lot of people from different countries who came. There were French people, and Germans, and Italians, and Austrians, and so forth. And as they would come into interviews, I had a little bit of a sense of stereotype of those different cultures. I tried to put it aside, right? I'll be open-minded and just receive each person as an individual. Well, (laughs) the German people came in, and one, two, three, five, ten, and after a while, it became really obvious. Almost everyone, with a couple of exceptions, was struggling with effort. I'm trying to do the practice, and I don't know how, and judgment, and there was this whole quality of... Something that one finds when traveling in Germany of effort and struggle and resistance and so forth. It's just what happened. Then the French people came in. And it wasn't all of them, but the, the large majority. And there was this quality of people who traveled in Asia and met French people in India at the ashrams and stuff, I sort of Got this flavor there, but it was even more so. It was a kind of laid back. It was like the, the, a combination of the existential psychologists of Sartre and a, a little bit of good French wine or something. It was like, why, what, are, what are we doing this for? You know, or, or even on a more kind of basic level, who gives a shit, man? It's just, uh, just Buddhism and a very sort of cynical quality for many of them the Italians came in, and to a person, to a a person, oh, such experiences! I had emotions and throwing their arms about, and the meditation was like this enormous opera for them. And it was really remarkable to see that what we are is simply a product of certain conditioning. The dharmas are without blame. It's not that you're good or that you're bad, but simply that we act out, or are the result of certain past circumstances. And they're completely unpossessed by us and completely empty. And when one understands that, there's a whole sense of humor that comes. Because, in fact, the German mentality can be used to, to, to follow the metaphor of Trumper Rinpoche. That quality of mind can be used in a way for great discipline or to make terrific automobiles as people know to be <laughs> it's it's true that there's a quality of precision to it that's that's really fine the, the french great wine i don't, I don't mean to <laughs> i don't mean to put down the cultures or characterize them too much you know but there's something in each of the things that seem troublesome at first that seem difficult that, in fact, lend themselves to some positive expression. And this was part of the playfulness of Trumpa Rinpoche, that he not only saw the difficulties, but he saw the potential in in all of the aspects of of practice. So there is brightness to his teaching. There was an openness, a willingness to engage with life and play with its elements. The path of the Bodhisattva in the Dharma is to not withdraw from life, but to go inward and discover that which is timeless. And bring that into manifestation in every realm of the world. The next quality that he represented was the quality of devotion. And this devotion was really a quality of the heart. When his teacher, Jamgan Kongtrol and Karmapa, the other of his great teachers came, it was very beautiful to see how How respectfully and uh, kindly he served them. He wrote a, a poem, a very long one that unfortunately I don't have here, called The Full Moon Sadhana, sitting in a cave in Bhutan in the 1960s. And it's a very powerful poem. It starts out by saying, these are the dark ages of the Dharma. The winds of sectarian bitterness blow between the countries and sects of the Buddha Dharma. Even though the Dharma has been proclaimed by the Buddha and carried on by many great teachers and lamas over centuries, people get lost in the philosophy, in the psychology, in the sects, in the the territoriality of it. And the true essence is often lost. And then he goes on from there to... Basically, pray or ask that those who receive the teachings of Dharma in this age of difficulty will take them and use them to the very best. There's another text which I do have from me, f- here which is called A Supplication Crying to the Gurus from Afar or Intensification of Devotion in One's Heart. And it goes I'll just read parts of it to the Buddha, to one's lamas, to all of the enlightened teachers of the world. Although I have attained a free and well-favored human birth, I find myself wasting it. I am distracted by the activities of life, often in futile ways, unable to accomplish the great objective of liberation and overcome at times by laziness. I return empty-handed from the land of jewels, Grant your blessings so that I fulfill the purpose of human birth. Goes on. Though I have everything I need, I constantly want more and more. My mind gets so easily caught by insubstantial and illusory things. O Guru, think of me, look upon me with compassion. Death is certain to come, but I am unable to take this to heart. The Dharma truly benefits, but I find it difficult to practice properly. Karma and its results are true, but I do not properly discriminate what to choose and what to leave behind. Mindfulness and awareness are certainly necessary, but not stabilizing them, I am still swept away by distractions. Oh, all of the great teachers think of me, look upon me with compassion. Grant your blessings so that I maintain undistracted awareness. Grant your blessings so that I give birth to deep sadness. Grant your blessings so that my worthless schemes are left behind. Grant your blessings so that I take to heart the sincerity of death and the need of all beings for liberation. Grant your blessings so that the path is free from obstacles. Yet grant your blessings so that unfortunate circumstances are brought into my path to bring learning. That's an amazing line. Unfortunate ones. Grant your blessings so that I continually apply my awareness. Grant your blessings so that the insight is awakened in my heart. Grant your blessings that I uproot confusion... Help me to realize that all dharmas are insubstantial and illusory. Help me to clear away confusion and perfect my experience and realization. Help me to learn properly the practice that liberates through all skillful means. And help me to share the unshakable realization of the truth with a heart of compassion for all beings. It's a very wonderful text. And this, in parts of one's practice, are recited over and over again. A great sense of devotion, crying to the gurus from afar. He talks about it another way in his book of Shambhala, The Sacred Warrior. He talks about it as the path of practice leading to the birth of a tender heart of sadness. that somehow the opening and the devotion of practice is the devotion to the Dharma, to the truth, to one's teachers, to one's self, one's own being, and then through that to all of the world. He says, as one develops the practice of a warrior of spiritual life, there comes the birth of a tender heart of sadness likened to a reindeer who's just beginning to sprout horns. They are fuzzy, raw, they kind of hurt. And the reindeer can't quite figure out what they're for, these little things on his head. Yet as they grow the horns of, into the horns of the reindeer and grow harder and more magnificent, the reindeer discovers that he should have horns. In the same way, the warrior opens their heart to the tender heart of sadness and realizes that, in fact, their heart should be able to touch all things in the world. He goes on in another place in that book to talk about how opening the heart does leave it raw and exposed. He says, like a piece of exposed meat, is his phrase. He doesn't kind of flinch from his his words. So sensitive that even a mosquito landing on the heart brings a big sense of, of movement and touch and contact. He said, this opening, it's not something dramatic. It's not where you're going to weep and listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something like that. It's much more ordinary and much more human and in that way much more special. He was actually a very warm and charming person, even though he had a big sangha. And at times it was difficult to get to see him because he was so busy with people when one could be with him there was a tremendous sense of warmth and of caring and of ease and charm. I remember going to his office one time to be with him, the first year or two of Naropa, and I expected to see pictures of Karmapa and of uh, Jumgen Kongtro and all the lamas of his lineage. And there weren't at all, there was only one picture on his wall, and it was of Suzuki Roshi, who had befriended him when Trumpa first came to this country. Trumpa went to Tassajara and they tried to kick him out of there because he was drinking and you weren't supposed to drink at Tassajara. And Suzuki Roshi said, no, let him stay and kind of took him under his wing. And I asked him about that picture and he said it was an amazing thing that he should come to America to meet his father. And he said it in the most loving and respectful way. It wasn't like working something out with your father. But just that here was somebody who really loved and accepted him as he was and saw his greatness, even in the very earliest years he was here. So this tremendous sense of, of a, a great heart and the power of his devotion, an inspiration for other people to participate in that. Brightness, openness, devotion, two other qualities. an uncompromising discipline. He was pretty amazing. In the beginning of his teachings, when he was running the center in Tale of the Tiger in Vermont, in 1969, he would just hang out with people. and They were taking acid. He would take a little acid. If he, if they were talking about, you know, um, transcendental consciousness, or or whatever people were doing in the hippie days, he would just get down and hang out and be a, a be willing to participate in that way. And so that's how his scene grew initially, and there was a a rural place in Tale of the Tiger, a place in Colorado. Everybody came, and they were learning from this interesting Tibetan Lama who hung out with them and talked this this Dharma language about things, and they were really intrigued, but there was no real practice. Well, after about three or four years of that, he called a great deal of his students together, especially the ones who were key in running his community, and he said, maybe it was just two or three years, he said, now we will all sit two hours a day. And they thought he was joking. I mean, it was so different than what he'd done. And in the first years he attracted poets and artists and and various kinds of people who would never go to be with any other regulation Buddhist teacher, people who wouldn't be caught within miles of a official religion. But somehow through his art and his calligraphy and his poems and his willingness to just get down and play with everybody, he attracted a whole group of people. There were theater people and there were interested scientists and there were, there were artists. And they were all there thinking that the Dharma was some kind of groovy uh, uh, picnic out in the country where you talked about Tibet or something mm-hmm. like that. And then he said, you will now sit two hours a day. They couldn't believe it. (laughs) The year that followed, he said, anyone who wishes to stay in the community will now do a one-week retreat, two or three times a year. And anyone who doesn't have a family will do a one-month retreat a year. They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. But they did it. And he gave them instructions. They had them doing that. He taught them basic sitting practice, and for three or four years people were doing the breath and the basic sitting practice, as we do. He started Naropa Institute and began teaching. Then, when Karmapa came, about three or four years later, his fold had grown greater and there were five or ten thousand students, people doing sitting and walking practice and doing their week-tuns or their their month-long sittings and so forth. He said then, at some point, now you're ready for real practice. And he said, so I'd like you to begin with what the Tibetans call the preliminaries of practice, the warm-ups, which are 100,000 grand prostrations from standing to lying out and back again standing, 100,000 of a particular mantra, 100,000 visualizations of a mandala offering, and a million seed mantras. This is the initial practice for anyone undertaking the Tibetan path of training. And he said, to all these people who had come in and thought it was just a groovy scene where you could hang out and be in the country and sort of gotten used to doing a little sitting, he said, you will now do the entire set of preliminaries, which for most people take one, two, or three, three years. And he got, I think he's had... One or 2,000 people, perhaps more, maybe 3,000 people in his community go from sitting around and talking about the Dharma and having a good old time in the course of seven or eight years in a very skillful way to not only learn sitting practice and do a lot of retreats, but to undertake the full training of the Tibetan path of practice to do that 100,000 prostrations and on from there. And I marvel at it. Um, the the skillful means of attracting people, and then gradually kind of suckering them into doing more and more (laughs) practice. Quite uncompromising. He wrote as an introduction to my own book, Living Buddhist Masters. He said that meditation begins by slowing the speed of our culture and neurotic mind. He said, meditation presents itself as an especially important discipline to the 20th century. The age of technology would also like to produce a new improved spiritual gadgetry, guaranteed to bring quick results. Charlatans manufacture their versions of the Dharma, advertising miraculous easy ways, rather than the steady and demanding personal journey that has always been the hallmark of true spiritual practice. And he really knew that and somehow over the years inculcated that in the people in his community. He said, as you may have heard at one large talk in Berkeley when many people came to listen to him and he was late. and He said, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go back to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine. He said, in fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, best not to begin. It's terrible. It's difficult. You have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. It is, for as far as the ego is concerned, one insult after another." <laughs> and so he said, quite seriously, if you don't even start, you'll probably be better off. Best not to begin. But if you do start, best to finish. Unfortunately, you've all started. <laughs> What are you going to do, go back and cultivate greed, hatred, and delusion? (laughs) (laughs) A great sense of earthiness and discipline. When we were in the very first year of Naropa Institute, there would be two big evening classes alternating. Monday, Wednesday, Friday was... uh, Ram Das and Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday was Trumpa Rinpoche. 2,000 people in this big hall, all learning to meditate and whatever. Ram Dass would come and we would sing Kirtan to his guru and chant and get high and enjoy. Uh, open bhakti, open the hearts. And Jamie was there. He loved it. He was really <laughs> in, his, in his element. And it was great. And then that was Monday night. Then Tuesday night we'd come. Trumpa would be a little late and he would just sit there very quietly for a long time and he would start giving this this very simple talk about how practice was be really meant being where you are coming down to earth not getting lost in all of this hoopla of eastern <laughs> lights and and sort of making fun of all the things that Ramdas was doing. Then on Wednesday night or Tuesday night, whatever it was, Ram- Wednesday night, Ramdas would come back and talk about his guru, and we would all sing together and get high and think about devotion and so forth. And then Thursday night, Trumpa would come back again and say, Impermanence, the fact of death. Remember that there's also suffering in life, you know. And then Ramdas would come. One night, this is going back and forth and people were going crazy. <laughs> Someone raised their hand in the talk after he gave his, his Trump gave his lecture and he said, you know, Ramdas has been talking to us about how how much uh, what great power there is in the grace of the Guru and to surrender to a guru in any way allows us to open to this spirit of grace. Or the grace of God, for the grace of God to come and illuminate us? Is there anything in Buddhism that corresponds to this sense of God's grace? And he sat there quietly for a minute, and he looked up and he said, Yes, which surprised everyone. Patience. (laughs) That was all he said. He was really unswerving in his teaching of the Dharma. He just put it out directly. There's one well-known Buddhist teacher I know. I guess I'll go on for a while tonight. I hope you don't mind. It's just how it's happening. There is one well-known Buddhist teacher in this country I know who talks about two kinds of Buddhism teaching. They are what he calls mercy Buddhism and transmission Buddhism. And for him, Mercy Buddhism, Transmission Buddhism, is the Buddhism of someone who really gets it to the point of being so awakened in it that they become the next holder of the banner of the Dharma, the next person in the lineage who carries on the depth of these teachings. And Mercy Buddhism is for all the rest of us, Shlemiels, who are kind of plodding along and basically will never perhaps get to that level, but need it at least to to ease our wounds, or to learn how to live in a bit more kinder or conscious fashion. And this particular teacher said that it's only one in a hundred that's ready for transmission Buddhism, and the rest is all kind of mop-up work, mercy Buddhism. Trungpa Rinpoche didn't see it that way, and I don't see it that way either. I believe that the practice that he taught with a great deal of discipline, year after year, not just one retreat or five retreats, or not just retreat practice itself, but making it a part of one's daily life, Um, doing long periods of practice, doing short periods of practice, studying, being willing to investigate in all the avenues possible the power and the strength of the Dharma, and make it alive in our being. I believe that is possible for all of us and that the practice that we do here in this very simple fashion of sitting and walking and listening with the inner ear and the heart and the mind can show us the, the deepest parts of the Buddha's enlightenment. We can see if we're willing to label and stay present and observe, even in one day, in sitting and walking and eating and sitting and walking with attention, The meaning of the Buddha's awakening, that the five processes, the five skandhas, are empty of a self, that they are ungraspable, that our whole being is a process that's unpossessable and not at all separate from what is around us. This is visible to any person who does this practice deeply. And so all of us can participate in this timeless and liberating understanding. There was a kind of sincerity and dignity that Trumpa Rinpoche communicated, that each person... ...openness, seeing that every situation is workable, is in fact the, the, what he called manure for Bodhi, the manure for enlightenment, is the thing that makes it rich and earthy and, and moist and, and uh, alive in our, in our practice. Devotion a soft and tender heart, a willingness to really let ourselves open to the play of light and dark and praise and blame and the ten thousand joys and sorrows, equally, to to let them touch the heart. And discipline, an uncompromising belief in, in our own nature, in the capacity to touch what the Buddha and every other great mystic and saint and sage has discovered. And the last of the qualities that I'd share tonight is the quality of a kind of mystery. He was one of the most enigmatic people that I ever met. He was clearly a genius. He's a beautiful calligrapher. He wrote plays. He did some wonderful and some kind of mediocre poetry, but some of it was terrific poetry. He was interested in photography. He was a terrific photographer. He was interested in science. He started a university. He started an enormous church. He wrote Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism the first year he came to America. A brilliant book. He looked around and saw that people in this country were taking spiritual practice which was intended to lead to freedom from from self and freedom from self-involvement and and uh, uh, self-delusion. Instead, they were using spiritual practice to become a a new, higher, more spiritual person... as a new kind of mask or identity. And he recognized it as soon as he came... and wrote this book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism... that goes to the very heart of spiritual practice. In the first year he was here, he scoped it out. How to use practice not to make a new, improved version of our personality... but to cut through all of that... To the very essence of our being. He also was peculiar. He drank, he was a womanizer. The things that I'll say about it, he was very open. He wasn't one of those gurus that you read about in the paper that was supposed to be celibate and then you discovered later it wasn't true. As far as I know there was nothing hidden about him. That was part of what was so mysterious. And he would do things in very unexpected ways. He also started a kind of feudal kingdom. His his church had... There was a little Vajra army and, and uh, people who were... It was as if he had a little Tibetan state around him who were trained and there was a court and there were princes and princesses and things. I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was quite terrific theater. I was glad to be able to visit it, perhaps more than have to live in the court, as anyone who's ever lived in the court knows the intrigue makes it not quite as interesting as it appears from the outside. But somehow I felt and I feel that he gave himself as fully to the West as any Buddhist teacher that I know that has come. And in a more remarkable way, he absorbed our culture and our language and our customs and our who we are, into himself, and then said, all right, let's play, let's take the seed of the Dharma and really make it sparkle and alive in the West. More than any Buddhist teacher who's come to the West so far. And he did it with his heart and his body. It killed him, although I think his drinking was a big part of that as well. But he gave himself in a remarkable way. And there was something mysterious about that, of how this person who grew up as the king of some small monastery or some large monastery in in a corner of Tibet could come to America and be able to do that so well. I remember one student of his who was very, very ill and was in the hospital and thought she was dying. And as she was dying, she thought of the practices that she'd done and she didn't know what to do. And it was, this was, again, about 12 or 13 years ago. And she was thinking of Trumper Rinpoche and how should one work with the Tibetan Book of the Dead or how to approach dying. She said, and as she got very close, she was very, very ill to it, all of a sudden, this form of Trumper Rinpoche appeared cross-legged, seated on her chest, and began to give her instructions in practice and dying. Now, you can take that for what it's worth, but that was her experience. I believe in that level of things, even in my own experience, both with the teachers that I've worked with or in a in a less directed way with students. There was one three-month retreat in Barry, I remember, for example, where I was uh, taking a period out to do some sitting myself. It was a one-month retreat, actually. And a friend came who I saw there, um, an old friend... Who was grieving and going through a very hard time in her practice, and I was being silent and not saying anything. But I saw it, and I could pick up and feel what was going on for her, even though I didn't know the circumstances. And I thought to myself, there's a passage that would really help her if she understood this thing that would really help her in her practice. And so I went and I sat and I meditated about it, I just thought about it, and then I went to sleep. Well, I saw her a week later when my retreat ended, And she came up to me and she said, you know, you came to me in my dream and said, please read Krishnamurti, page 21, in uh, Freedom from the Known. And I opened it and I read it. And it solved that whole knot of my heart. And that was the passage. There is a mystery around Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche of things that I don't understand at all. Really quite remarkable. Many, many things. Um, he was such a combination of qualities. And his books, I'm just looking through them a little bit today to, to find things to read or report. They're like a treasure trove. It's like going into the basement of some wealthy museum. Every few pages has some new, beautiful explanation of some aspect of the Dharma. And what his books do... And what his teaching did was to invite each of us directly to become inheritors of this majestic, spiritual heritage, lineage. His, his banners had a, had a drawing on them which was called the Knot of Eternity. It's sort of a, a, a linking of loops that go round and round and round and reconnect with one another. And the Knot of Eternity is the eternal and timeless Dharma the dharma of liberation, the dharma of the liberation of the heart. (coughs) In the same way, at this retreat, and with the practice that we do, I and all of us as teachers invite you in the name of Jaukun Bodhinyana, Ajahn Chah Subato Mahatera, which was his whole big title of Ajahn Chah, and the venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, Agha, Mahapandita, and all of his teachers, and his teacher's teachers, and Ajahn Shah's teacher, Ajahn Mahabhua, and his teacher's teachers, and their teacher's teachers, and a hundred thousand yogis for all these centuries. You are invited to take this practice and to make it your own, and to carry the banner of the Dharma for yourself in this world. I'd like to end, if I can, by reading a story which is not by Trumpa Rinpoche but one out of this book called Tales of the Magic Monastery which is by a Trappist monk, a friend of mine, Father Theophane, who teaches sometimes at our center in Massachusetts. The Magic Monastery is a place where when you get frustrated with your earthly monastery or earthly monastery, you go because maybe they'll have a better answer there. So he, this story is simple. He says, I am a monk myself And the one question that I really tried to answer but could not in my own monastery is, what does it mean to be a monk? Well, when I went to the Magic Monastery after many years of asking, finally, I found a place to ask to my satisfaction. But for an answer, I got a most peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? Now, what could that mean? When I didn't answer, he picked it up again. A monk, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, he's contracted behind his cloister walls, dressed in a habit like all of the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk to do. Or a nun, for this matter. At night, he expands. The walls cannot contain him. He moves throughout the world, and he touches the stars. Ah, I thought to myself, poetry. To bring him down to earth so I could really answer my question, I began to say, well, during the day in his real body, does he? Wait, said the master at the magic monastery. That's the difference between you and us. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense, But here we tend to start from the other end, the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a monk by his decorum during the day, we tend to measure a monk by the number of persons he touches at night and the number of stars. Rinpoche touched a lot of hearts and a lot of people and a lot of stars. It's interesting when someone dies. I loved him very much. I still do, actually. And particularly in his case, I will miss him being here. I'd love to go talk to him. or He's one of the few people I feel like I could sit down and say, this is what I'm doing and teaching and trying to do and create. And what do you think? Who would really understand it? But somehow I feel his spirit to be here, perhaps as much or more than anyone I know who's ever died. Someone asked him once, whether he would come back as the 12th or the 13th Trumpatoku, whatever it is, in his next reincarnation. I believe the answer was he wasn't certain whether he was going to bother in that form or not. But perhaps he'd come back in Japan as a businessman or something else more interesting. He was a very wonderful person and a wonderful teacher and a great inspiration. And I hope through the bit that I shared tonight that it gives you a sense of the empowerment that he gave to me and to many people around him to take the dharma and bring it into our own lives in our own hearts in our own minds and to make it make it true for ourselves so I thank you